This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Westwards podcast for today. It's Saturday, the 13th of November 2021. My name is James Roy. I'm Program Manager at Westwards. In case you don't know what we do or who we are, Westwards is a, an arts organisation uh, set in Western Sydney where we cover all of Western Sydney from Parramatta right across to Mount Victoria and up into the Hills District and the Hawkesbury and down to Camden and Campbelltown and, and beyond. We exist to offer support to creative people, writers, artists, people like that, and also audience members and people who are professional writers, but also people who are amateur writers who really want to improve their skills. So we have a lot on our plate. We do a lot of things. Uh, We'd love you to come drop by and have a look. Come to our website at any time, westwords.com.au. Come and see what we offer or give us a call on 1800-WESTWORDS and we can help you out. So today we're going to have a bit of news and we've got some announcements to make about some prizes that people have won and we might even find a way to share one of those as well. Plus there's all the other news and views from around the place. So stay with us. One of the traditions we have on the Westwards podcast is to find somebody who was either born on this particular day or died on this day. I think on one occasion we've had somebody who was born and died on the same day, different years obviously. And we find somebody who has something important to say about creativity. Now, they're not always a creator, like a writer or whatever, but most often they are. And today we have Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, as a young boy who read voraciously, Robert Louis Stevenson was one of my go-tos because he wrote these incredible stories such as Treasure Island and uh, I think Kidnapped was his and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Charles Gardner versus certainly Treasure Island and Kidnapped were my my two favourites, especially considering that I personally I grew up in Fiji and a lot of what uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote was written while he was living in Samoa. He died at a very young age, in fact, he died at forty four in Samoa, but he was a travel writer as well as an adventure writer and a children's writer. He was a novelist, an essayist, essayist and a poet, but he really kind of he really identified very strongly with travel. He loved being a travel writer. And he said this. Now, I thought this was appropriate considering that we're all coming out of lockdown and hopefully we're not far away from being able to travel relatively freely again. And this is what he had to say about travel. I found a couple of quotes of his about this. He said, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel... For travel's sake, the great affair is to move. 
And he also said to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. So he was very much one of these people who believes that the destination, yeah, sure, the destination is important. It's good to get to where we're wanting to get to. But the journey is really what it's about. Now, I was reflecting on this as, as a writer, and I've done a lot of work in schools where students have asked me, if you want to be a writer, what subject should you do? And my answer has always been, well, you know, if you're writing in English, obviously English is a good thing to be studying. But there are two other subjects that I think you should study or, or undertake if you want to be a writer. And only one of them is an actual subject, unfortunately, and that is history. I think history is very important to help inform us of the way the world works. Comparative religions wouldn't be bad either because it's hard to understand the modern world or even the ancient world unless you understand a little bit of the role that religion has played. But certainly uh, history is very important. And the other one is travel. And as I say, travel is not really an HSC elective, is it? There are some fortunate students who get to go overseas as part of their studies. You know, they might remember a number of schools that I've I've been to. They they send off some of their kids every year to go and go and visit the Louvre in Paris or whatever. And that's that's obviously not something that everyone can do. But I always make the point that travel is something that you should do because I find that when you're travelling, even if you're travelling somewhere unexpected, you're not going to one of the the glamorous places, but you just find yourself just in a place. You might be there for a different reason. You might just be stopping over or you might have found yourself there by misadventure or you may be going there for a different job and you find yourself there. I find that you can always find something to uh, entertain you as a writer, something to put away in the memory banks. And it also teaches you a great deal about people, I think. It teaches you that uh, people are just people and regardless of where you are in the world, if you get yourself in a bit of a scrape... Sure, there's always going to be people who want to rip you off. That's going to be the case wherever you go. But there's also going to be people who are prepared to help you and uh, show you around and and make sure that you're safe and, and tell you how things go in this particular place. And we all have these stories and we've all heard these stories. People come home from, you know, insert name of place here and they go, oh, the people were wonderful. They're so wonderful. They just couldn't do enough for you. You know what? In my experience, that's pretty much everywhere I've travelled. But that's not really the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that travel opens up your eyes to humanity and it opens up your eyes to stories. It opens up your eyes to the way things are because it's good to realise that the way we do things in one place is not the only way to do it. Now, I'm aware that Westwards operates within Western Sydney and a great number of people in Western Sydney, more than anywhere else in the country, have come from elsewhere. It'd be interesting to know how they found travelling to Australia. Anyway, I've digressed a little bit, but Robert Louis Stevenson, he was very much about the travel, and I don't think that's a bad thing to be as a writer. The thing about travel too is it doesn't have to be something that you sit on a plane for 12 hours or longer to get to that place. It can just be going to a, a shopping centre in a different part of the city, or it might be driving down a different street than the one you normally go down. Writers observe, artists observe, and, and as soon as we, the sooner we start really learning to observe, the sooner we start to add variety and interest and, and all those sorts of wonderful elements to the way that we create our art. So happy birthday, Robert Louis Stevenson. Thank you for the books. And thank you for reminding us that travel is uh, 
one of the best sources of inspiration and personal growth that you can find. I'd like to share a bit of news with you now. On Friday, we announced the winners and the highly committed entries for the Fisher's Ghost Writing Prize. Fisher's Ghost Writing Prize is done in conjunction with Campbelltown City Library. One of the things that we do do at Westwards quite well, I think, is creative writing prizes and that sort of thing, competitions. We've got a bit of experience now. We've been doing it uh, with the Blacktown Merrill Creative Writing Prize. We've been helping them do this for a number of years now. We did the Living Stories competition earlier this year, which was a massive enterprise across all the LGAs in, in Western Sydney. And then most recently, the Fisher's Ghost Writing Prize. Fisher's Ghost is a festival that runs in Campbelltown. It's a pretty fun event, actually. And it celebrates the life of Australia's most famous ghost, Frederick Fisher. Now, Frederick was a guy who was, was murdered, and then people swore that they saw him later on. And we helped coordinate and run the inaugural Fisher's Ghost Writing Prize this year. Now, we got 100 entries, or almost 100 entries, 98, in fact, across all categories. There were four categories, three school categories and one adult category. And each of those categories was broken up into subcategories of either poetry or prose slash short story slash memoir slash essay. And the theme to which people were asked to respond was hiding in plain sight. And as I say, we got almost 100 entries. And just the other day, we announced the winners and the highly commended. So I would like to share those names with you right now. Furkan Rahman was the winner of the Grades 4 to 6 Poetry. And Annabelle Frederico was highly commended in Grade 4 to 6 Poetry. For Grade 4 to 6 short story, non-fiction and memoir. The winner was Brendan Diaz and the highly commended was Sue Nguyen. Marian Musamil won poetry for years seven to nine and Zoe Bonifacio was highly commended in poetry for grade seven to nine. Grade seven to nine short story, non-fiction and memoir was Lisa Kuma and Mary Nguyen was the highly commended for the same category. Tara Lau was winner for poetry for grades 10 to 12, with Lena Lee as the poetry highly commended. In the short story non-fiction memoir for grades 10 to 12, Emma Hughes was the winner, Angela Chow and Tia Purahit were the highly commended. We had two highly commended in that particular category. Marguerite Pullum won the poetry category for adults, with Glenn McPherson, who is a well-known poet, highly commended. Jan Neves was also highly commended for the poetry. And then for the short story non-fiction memoir, Blake Curran was the winner and Lee McCarricher was the highly commended short story non-fiction memoir writer. So congratulations to all of those people. The adult winners won $300, the highly commended won $100. And the school students in each category, the winners received $100 and the highly commended received $50. And each student winner at school library also received $100. One of the points that the judges made very strongly was that some of the entries from the students, the school students, was really top draw. And I think this is really best exemplified by the winner of the grades 10 to 12 short story section. This is a story called Dave Wrote a Poem by Emma Hughes from William Carey Christian School. And the judges were really impressed by this, impressed enough to make it the winner. 
And if you'd indulge me, I'd like to read it because this is some extraordinary writing here from a young person, from any person, but particularly from a young person. So if you indulge me, I'm going to read Dave wrote a poem by Emma Hughes. Dave wrote a poem. It was a nice poem, lilting and softly dismal. One of those flowery pieces that I don't read, but I'm willing to listen to for the sake of a friend. He read it to me, his voice filled with the timber of an old man. Told with authority, his voice followed the waves of inflection, intimately caressing every word with such a thorough understanding that it would absolve any doubt, if I even had any, about the authorship. He knew the poem, like a father to a son, like a god to a man, like a writer to his pen. Dave has written more recently. He's been writing like a dying man, attending to his will, constantly writing like his brain is a river rushing to the page. I suppose the fancies of Lady Inspiration have finally turned attention to him, fluttering her chocolate eyes at his whimsical imagination. If I didn't know better, I'd say he was in love, for what else could play a man like a lute only to have him holed up in a room, scribbling notes and typing verses for an art form that for the majority is dead? He writes about an inky blackness, which seems a little on the nose to me. For all the metaphors he could have used, the literal comparison to ink is obvious, even to the untrained eye. I guess writing has taken a toll on him, if he's going to write in the meta-sense. So many playwrights have attempted to capture the feeling of putting pen to paper, so few have achieved that sense of, I don't know, creativity. I'm not that much of a writer myself. We went out for brunch, Dave and I, out in a little pavilion to the side of a quaint but secluded restaurant. It was a picturesque tableau, a stone building the colour of cream, whipped into the shape of a cottage, all wooden signs and thatched roofs. There was a cheerful pop song drifting through the rafters like a cool breeze, settling over us in a quiet sort of content. We sat at a corner table and just talked in a way that isn't common for us now as adults. He said something or other, it might have been profound. I thought so at least, but I was very drunk. He swayed into me and I remember weeping or vomiting and ordering the cheque. We might have been sobbing at this point. I remember telling him I loved him in an over-exaggerated way I want to do when absolutely pissed. He was smashed too. It was a good night. Dave is dead. Dave is dead and I don't remember what he told me in the quiet corner of a stone pavilion when we were considerably inebriated the day before he died. Dave is dead and I don't know why. Dave is dead and he told me he was going to do it. What an extraordinary piece of writing for anyone but for a young person in particular. So congratulations to Emma and the other people who were either named winners or highly commended entries in this competition this writing prize and uh, we hope that it'll be something that we're involved in again next year that would be great but uh, congratulations to everyone and I hope you've enjoyed that little piece I don't know if Emma listens to this podcast but if she does Emma that's a masterpiece of writing and uh, all the best with your ongoing writing career and I would say that to everybody who entered because it takes a certain amount of bravery to enter a competition uh, where your your work is going to be read by strangers and possibly even read on a podcast so you can find uh, the full digital version of that particular publication on our website westwords.com.au or you, and just look for the Fisher, Fisher's Ghost Prize or you can in fact go to Campbelltown Library and have a look at a hard copy of the same book it's nicely put together by Sailor Studios who we've worked with for a number of years and uh, anyone who appears in it should feel very proud Now, if you've been storing some brilliant poem um, in your desk drawer that is about faith or religion or God or the absence of a God or whatever it might be, anything in that kind of milieu, as they say, 
You still have time to enter the Blake Poetry Prize. It's going to have to be quick. Closes on Monday the 15th, which, as I record, this is in a couple of days. So drop by and upload your entry. You can go to the, our website to find the links for that. And that's held in partnership with the Casula Powerhouse Arts Centre and Liverpool City Council. Now, our school programs have been pretty significantly impacted because of lockdown. Some of them are getting back into, back into uh, a state of existence again. For example, author Jodie McLeod from the Blue Mountains, who has worked with us before, she, she's been part of our Ride and Residence program at Bennett Road Public School. And she has done the last session now and a publication is going to be forthcoming. And last Tuesday afternoon, I was lucky enough to be invited to the Zoom launch of Stepping Stones, which is a collection of poetry and short fiction from the Ponds High School, which we've, a school we've worked with for a couple of years. So there's an anthology for that as well, which you can find via our website if you so desire. And I really encourage that this too is uh, an example of some very good writing by young people. So in the clubhouse this week, our superstar blogger is Belinda Morell. Belinda's a pretty heavy hitter in the children's world. This is somebody who has, I think it was 10 years in a row, was shortlisted for the Koala Awards, which are a, a kid's choice writing award. She's also been shortlisted for the Wabras and all the others that are, are from different states. And she's a pretty popular writer and a very good writer. And she is currently in our, our clubhouse being our, our, our guest blogger. So you can join her by going to westwords.com.au slash clubhouse. Anyone you know who is young and who loves creativity and loves telling stories and whatever is very welcome to join us and to join Belinda and ask her questions or just learn from her. Now, all the other stuff from all the other guest bloggers in the past, people like Tim Harris and Jacqueline Harvey and most recently uh, Tanya McCartney and R.A. Spratt and Pamela Freeman. Every month we have a new person come along and share what they do as a children's writer and all of those posts remain on the website in the archive. So there's so much there for anyone who's really keen on writing. If you're a young person and you want to know how, how you develop characters, how you get started, how you brainstorm, questions to ask yourself about writing, how to beat writer's block, how to get that very, very first nub of an idea that you're going to turn into the big thing, how you, how you edit, how you approach things like self-publishing. It's all there. If you go back over the year that we've had of... Uh, guest blogging, you'll find something in there that will really speak to you. So westwords.com.au slash clubhouse to get on there. Now, Booktober has wound to a close. You can still make a donation there by going to booktober.org.au. And this is a fundraiser. It, it was a little bit like, how did I describe it the other day? It was a little bit like those old readathons we used to do, the MS readathon and so forth. Uh, but it is putting books and stories telling skills into the hands of children from Western Sydney and you get to read a book, read several books, get people to pay you to read those books, which sounds like a good deal to me, and then that money is donated to Westwards to go straight into programs and books for young people in Western Sydney. And there's still time to donate, so you can get along there. You don't have to actually have sponsored anyone. You can just turn up and say, I've got a $50 note here that needs to go somewhere would you like it? And we will say, yes, please. We will certainly take that off your hands and put it to a very good use. In this week's reading, and we do this every week, we have a reading on our YouTube channel. 
The YouTube channel is called Westwards Official. So if you just go to YouTube, YouTube and type in Westwards Official, all one word, you'll find us. And there's all these playlists there. A lot of the videos for ch children and so forth can be found on the Clubhouse site. But all the other stuff like our readings and our poetry slams and everything we do that is digital in that way is on our YouTube channel. And this particular week, we have Lucy Neve reading from her new book, Believe in Me, which is published by UQP. And it was developed at Varuna, the National Writers' House, and we're about to kick off our Westwards Varuna Emerging Writers' Residency next week. And the four writers for that are primed and ready to roll. And so uh, here's Lucy Neve now reading from her book, Believe in Me. Hi, I'm Lucy Neve, and I'm reading from my novel, Believe in Me, which was published by UQP in August 2021. The novel is about a daughter imagining her mother's life. I'm going to read from chapter 11, which is when the mother, whose name is Sarah, is in an unmarried mother's home in Sydney. And unmarried mother's homes basically meant that you were forced to adopt out your child. So just reading from the beginning of chapter 11. Miranda, the girl who scrubs surgical instruments with Sarah, has a book. She found it in a storeroom where the trainee midwives have naps. Sarah and Miranda, whose due date is also fast approaching, sit up at night on the hallway windowsill. Miranda looks at the pictures while Sarah reads the text. Much of it is written in medical jargon, but this doesn't dissuade Sarah, who's hungry to read anything besides the Australian Women's Weekly, the only reading material available in the lounge downstairs. Miranda grimaces at the pictures of babies presenting bottom first or with the cord wrapped around their necks. Sarah reads about labour, about how the first stage can last for days, especially for those who've never given birth before. She reads about how it might happen, how it ought to happen, and files it away in the back of her mind. At night, when she can't sleep, she talks to the baby. She can't raise the child's hopes. She says, I don't belong here. I must go back to my own mother. That's where they'll send me. At the same time, she thinks, why didn't I shake John by the shoulders and yell, I'm taking the baby, he's mine. For a few days, she feels pain in the morning that comes and goes. She wears a navy blue skirt that she finds in one of the wardrobes, thinking it'll be harder for the matron to tell if it's stained, if her waters break. She stuffs the jumpsuit Myra gave her into her bra. She knows that the baby may never wear it, but she carries it against her breasts, telling herself that it's a talisman, even though it's uncomfortable. She's read about Braxton Hicks contractions and waits to see if the pain worsens. By mid-afternoon, it fades. The matron makes her lie down in an examination room on the first floor of the hospital. Only two trainee midwives are in there watching. The matron pokes the baby and says, I think we're gonna have to take it out. Then she says, that's right. You're that hillbilly American who can't write her own name. Have it your own way. Under her breath, Sarah says, I'll try. One of her calculations is that if she's meek and well-behaved, maybe they'll let her hold the baby. They'll let her look into the child's eyes, wrap his fingers around hers. She'll tell him that she loves him. This love will sustain him. He'll feel it, even if he doesn't know where it comes from. What she dreads is that she'll have an anaesthetic for the caesarean. They'll take the baby away and she'll never see his face. She doesn't say anything about this to the matron because if, it, if she asks, it's more likely that the matron will thwart her. Two days of intermittent pain, then the real pain starts. She thinks she might be able to avoid 
having her belly sliced open if no one knows she's in labour, so she hides her discomfort. Her mum popped out babies as though they were Aggies, her dad had said. Sarah remembers him saying this when he'd had a couple of beers and was sitting on the back porch. The late afternoon sun was shining in a broad yellow path on the dirt. As Sarah's breath comes fast, she imagines him with her saying, you'll pop that baby out like a marble. It lasts all day. She might have the baby easily when the time comes, but in the meantime, the pain is fierce. She's scrubbing instruments on her own because Miranda's in labor and hasn't been able to hold the agony at bay. Who can blame her? Sarah stands up from her stool and walks around the room to stop herself from crying out. As the day wears on, walking isn't enough and she has to get down on all fours like a dog. It's so bad that she vomits in the sink then washes it down. When bundles of bloody instruments are delivered by an orderly, she sits on the stool and smiles and hopes that a contraction won't arrive until he's gone. Around four, a new girl appears. Sarah's feeling shaky now. When a contraction comes, her own breath drowns out every other sound. She wants to push. The girl says, I came to help. They're complaining upstairs that you're too slow. Her face is hard, your skirt's wet. It's the same navy skirt. Sarah's been wearing it for days. By now the pain is frightening, as if a piece of wire is being tightened around some inside part of her. With each contraction, the wire grows tighter. What should she be afraid of? The pain? Being cut open with the surgeon's knife? She doesn't know. By turns, she's scared and strangely calm. Come upstairs, the new girl says. Her voice wavers. Don't tell the matron, Sarah says. Don't tell anyone. Just lead me to the obstetrics ward and I'll be all right. Is it very bad? In between contractions, the baby is starting to feel as if it's coming. Sarah says again, don't tell her. What should I say? Nothing, Sarah says, or I'll stay down here. And when they come for me, I'll tell them you kicked me in the stomach. The girl's eyes widen. Then she leads Sarah along hallways, around corners, upstairs. The floors are clean, but the paint is old flaking in places, and the voices of the women and their families in this hospital, which is mostly for the poor and the unwed, are too loud. They bounce from the walls. Sarah might not have been able to find the way if not for the new girl. She's consumed by pain. Twice she stops and rests against the wall and even feels herself bear down on what's inside her. The girl leads her up some more stairs. A midwife shepherds her into a small room containing a bed with stirrups and tells Sarah to take off her underpants, climb up there, lie on her back and they'll shave her soon. And then the doctor and the mid trainees will be along. The midwife says it's the last room left, that Sarah's lucky she doesn't have to have her baby in the hall because it's so busy tonight. From along the hall is the sound of Miranda crying and sometimes screaming, I'll bite you. Sarah hears her yell, get away from me. Or perhaps it's not Miranda. Perhaps it's a series of anguished voices interweaving, rebounding from the hard surfaces of the ward. Sarah hears footsteps, all those midwives learning about third degree tears and the wheeling of trolleys laden with gases to knock you out. If it weren't for Miranda and all the others, Sarah knows she would have attracted the matron's attention by now. It's six o'clock in the evening. And when the contractions ease up for a minute, she sees the blue evening sky outside. Then the pain is back and the midwife is gone. Sarah takes off her underpants, but she can't get onto the bed, can't put her feet in the stirrups. It would be too much effort. She's squatting on the floor. She can feel something heavy in the space between her legs. Although it feels inanimate, like a stone, it makes the top of her head tingle. 
When the midwife comes back, Sarah is still squatting on the floor. The skin between her legs is on fire. The midwife kneels beside her. Her eyes are large, dark, and there's something about the steadiness of her gaze that Sarah trusts. Do you want to feel the baby's head? The woman's voice is low. She places Sarah's head, hand between her legs. Sarah rests her hand there for a moment. Then the baby's head breaks through and a moment later, its body. The midwife catches the infant. She has her fingers in the baby's armpits so that the head, that wet, dark head thing never hits the floor. Sarah feels a wave of gratitude for this woman, this stranger who catches her child. The baby's a girl, not a boy. Her eyes are wide open, her arms spread as though she's coming out dancing. It's the morrow reflex. The baby thinks she's falling, but Sarah doesn't know this. The baby has long arms, long legs. She inhales her first breath. Her eyes are wide, even though she's crying. Her skin is as pink as the inside of someone's mouth. Sarah lifts the infant from the midwife's arms and the midwife lets her. Sarah, Sarah looks down at the baby's open eyes, so dark that they're almost black. She kisses her thin, dark hair, still wet, and leans against the bed, holding the baby, the baby looking up at her. That brings us to the end of our podcast for today. If there's anything we can do at Westwards to help you as a creative person or as somebody who wants to understand creativity, then we really urge you to get in touch with us. As I say, you can either go to our website, you can email admin at westwords.com.au and somebody will be in touch, or you can go to 1800 Westwords and we'll pick up the phone. But the website's probably your best first place to look. Unfortunately, we can't provide the travel. As we talked about earlier, travel is probably pretty important, but there's not much we can do to help you with that. That You're on your own there. But with pretty much everything else, we are here to help. So please get in touch. And if you are creating, create with bravery and confidence and courage and happy creating. Talk to you soon. Bye.